Well, thank you, singers and musicians, for leading us again with those uh, very, I think, uh, appropriate songs that we have sung this evening, leading into Romans uh, chapter 8. And thanks, Stuart, for leading us also and for your opening prayer, which again, I think, uh, in many ways, just prepared us for what we are thinking about here this evening in uh, Romans 8. And so please uh, turn it up in the uh, Bible that you have there in the pew or in your journal in Romans. And uh, again, it's page 1,135. And uh, I will be uh, referring quite a bit to these verses in this passage this evening. But before we start, let's uh, just bow together for a prayer for a moment. Yes, oh God, as we sing those words, we are reminded this, you are the rock, the rock upon which we build, that secure rock, that which we recognize as sure and steadfast. And Father, as we come again to your word, we pray that we may hear you speak to us and help us, O Lord, to dwell upon our assurance that we have in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for our salvation. And Father, yes, we build our lives upon that solid truth that rock. And so we come with thanks. And we pray, Father, through your spirit that you will once again minister to us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, this evening we continue with our reading of Romans chapter 8. And it seems to me that it's no coincidence that out of the, the 16 chapters that we have here in Romans, that chapter 8 is the center of the letter. Without numerating the verses, this section of the letter fits centrally into Paul's argument, a, a message of assurance that he's been delivering to believing Jews and Gentiles. Romans 8 has been called the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of Christian faith. It sets out some of the, the wonderful blessings we enjoy as believers and inspires us with some of the, the greatest assurances of God's love for us. If you were here last uh, Sunday evening, and as I look around, I see many of you were, or you were able to uh, view the YouTube video we were inspired by Terry's sermon on Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, beginning with this tremendous assurance that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an affirmation it is for us to know. And what further assurance there is in that uh, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, which we read in verse 16. In verse 1, Paul affirms there is no condemnation. You are set free, acquitted 
Christ bore the condemnation on the cross and has set us free. 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 Thank God Almighty, we are free. To paraphrase the famous uh, Martin Luther King's speech, yes, we're free. Christ has set us free. There's no condemnation. And the chapter begins with there being no condemnation in verse 1 and ends in verse 39 with another affirmation. No separation from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love. If there's no condemnation for you and me as a believer, welcomed into the family of God as a child of God, there's no way we will be separated from God, from his love. The Spirit testifies we are God's children. And so we are assured by these two inspirational verses that sit in Romans like bookends. No condemnation, no separation. Well, let's turn to verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The idea here is of looking forward to victory over sufferings and frustrations. Verse 37, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Looking forward, looking forward with eager expectation to the day of victory. The word used for expectation here alludes to one straining the neck to see something. Reminds me of the Zacchaeus and the crowd wanting to see Jesus. Straining the neck. They couldn't see how to end up going up into a tree. Or it reminds me of an expectator on the terraces of Kingspan Stadium, straining the neck hoping that Ulster Rugby may win. Looking forward, straining the neck with expectation. Now, I'm going to continue with a football illustration. Now, please forgive me those who don't like football, but bear with me for a few moments. I have been a Tottenham Hotspur fan for well over 60 years. The last time they won the English First Division League was in 1961. I've been looking forward to the day when they would win the Premier League Championship. Each year they begin the season and I live with hope. But I've endured years of disappointments and frustrations. Victory remains a fantasy. Now you might say, I have a pain in in the neck by now. 
as I have waited in eager expectation. Over 50 years ago, I committed myself to Christ. God, out of his free grace, has chosen me. Not because of any good in me or merit, merit that I have achieved, but as a sinner, I was saved by grace alone in Jesus. And over my 50 years as a Christian, I have had my frustrations, I've had my disappointments, and occasionally there's been pain or, or suffering. But you know what? I can look forward with eager expectation to the glory that will be revealed, to the victory. The score is guaranteed. In verse 37, we are more than conquerors. I will see the winning trophy. The score is guaranteed. You and I, who know Jesus and his living spirit will be present at the celebration. So let's explore these verses a little more. And first of all, I'm going to begin with verses 28 to 31, which I'm referring to as the Christian's present assurance. And then secondly, verses 18 to 28, the Christian's present suffering. And then thirdly, the Christian's future glory. So first of all, 28 to 31, the Christian's present assurance. And the assurance we have here and now is what? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You see, firstly, we are too aware that the Christian life isn't always smooth and things don't always seem good. I spoke to a senior member in his 80s, member of this congregation in his home just a few days ago. And he told me he became a Christian when he was 14. And that's wonderful to hear of people coming to Christ when young. And of course, that's what we pray for our young. But he said, and he added, things haven't always been good. But our assurance is that God is with us, working things out. By his grace, he is working it out. He will have a purpose that will be revealed. And secondly, the Christian is called by God in accordance to his purpose. And those who believe are called into a relationship with God. He embraces us as his children. He, he wants us to know that all he has for us is good. 
like, like the waiting father, remember, who strained his neck waiting for his son, the, the, the prodigal son, to return. He welcomed the prodigal home. He lavished him with good things. God, our Father, will work things out for the good of his children. And verses 29 to 30, well, provides us with a lesson on Calvinism. Now, I'm not going to give you a lecture on the theology of Calvin this evening. But let's look at Romans verses 28, 29 to 30, where we read, For those God foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. For the Christian, God foreknew. Isn't our assurance that in eternity, God in his grace chose us. That God chose me, even me. That God formed a relationship with me. It is of his doing. Isn't that stunning and overwhelming? Do you see this? That from a time in eternity, God chose you. That God predestined you and me who believe to be conformed into the image of his son. That God is conforming us. He has a master plan for us that in every circumstance, all things are put in place to shape, smooth, sculpt, cast, and form us into Christ's perfect goodness. Timothy Keller says, God is pouring us into the mold of Christ's perfect greatness. From the beginning, God has been the perfect craftsman, artist, with clay in his hands, he is forming us into the perfect vessel, into the glory of his son. In verse 29, like our siblings, brothers and sisters in the faith, we are to be conformed into the image of the firstborn, Jesus. And those he predestines, he called and called, he justified. We we have been dwelling on um, been dwelling on this in previous sermons. As shameful sinners, we stand before God in judgment. The consequences of our sinful nature is punishment, or the verdict is sin. But Christ has taken upon himself our death. He died in our place. He paid the price to set us free. 
Through grace, we are justified, pronounced and treated by God as legally righteous and blameless. God intended this for us. What assurance from the beginning, our salvation, our redemption, our rescue was in the plan of God. And those he justified, he also glorified. And when Christ was raised and ascended into heaven, he glorified, beautiful, majestic, holy. To be glorified is to have all sin eradicated and made perfect and pure. And lose again to verse 18 and to the glory that will be revealed in us. Uh, you'll, you'll see here there's a dichotomy in the tenses between verse 18 and 30. It seems that our future glorification is in the past tense. Our assurance is that like the other links in the verb strain in verse 30, it is certain glorification is guaranteed. The Christian's present assurance is if we love God, we are called. And as called people, we are predestined, justified, soon to be glorified people. And look, I trust that you are comfortable with this assurance that you have surrendered to your calling and know the joy of being chosen by the God of grace. In verse 31, we read, if God is for us, who can be against us? You see, nothing can change our destiny. Verse 2, or secondly, in verses 18 to 28, we have reference to the Christian's present suffering. And again, we read there, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. God's good creation, we read in Genesis, failed to attain its purpose. Because of human sin, the original sin, creation is not what God intended it to be. Due to Adam's disobedience, all have sinned and the earth was cursed. All of creation was subjected to frustration. The fate of creation was bound up with humanity. The world of confusion and frustration was subject to God, both creator and judge. And we read also in verse 21, both creator and liberator. The word translated frustration means literally here, emptiness, futility, purposelessness, 
meaningless. The book of Ecclesiastes is a good commentary on, on what is meant. The author expresses life lived under the sun as meaningless, utterly meaningless. And verse 22 alludes to all of creation groaning in the pains of childbirth. I think we can recognize this in the world of today. We listen to a world that at times is a megaphone of frustration. There's much groaning and despair. We have had a weekend when the war in Ukraine reached its first anniversary. Meaningless suffering, loss of life, destruction, persecution, an earthquake in Turkey and Syria, tectonic plate collisions, and earth movements creating destruction, crushing numerous lives. Verse 18. We consider our present sufferings. Who among us have not experienced some affliction? When Paul wrote of suffering, he knew what he was talking about. When we turn up 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following, we, we read of Paul's many perils. He was imprisoned, beaten, stoned, spent hours in the sea as a result of a boat wreck. He was constantly in danger from robbers, from his opponents, and he spent days hungry, nights sleepless. He carried constantly the anxiety and pressure of concern for the church. He suffered illness. He had what was called a thorn in the flesh. Healing had been sought. He prayed only to receive the answer. From God, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul writes, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And in verse 21, creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The created world subject to flawed supervision of humanity will be delivered and made new. This is our hope. We're moving towards the glorious deliverance of creation and its restoration to its magnificent origin. Just as we are eagerly expecting our glorification as the children of God. Like we, we live in an age of groaning, here groaning over climate change and environmental catastrophes. We listen to campaigners like Greta Thunberg. And we might be contributing to valuable action and leaving out our blue bin on collection day. The world might be responding to activists for the environment. And we should, if, if we accept the arguments, respond appropriately, use recyclable paper cups in church or whatever. But we as Christians expect a different vision in God's time of a new earth. We read in Isaiah chapter 65, see, I will create 
new heavens and a new earth, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. On Thursday, I was on my regular uh, walk along the coastal path to Hollywood and thinking about the sermon um, and the wonder of the restored creation, the new earth. I thought the view on the, the coastal path is splendid, but how much more excellent it will be in the new creation. No more Kilrit chimney, no more the turbines on the hills. Wonderful. I enjoy the drive over the Craig Antlet Hills to Dundonald, the view from Dunlady Road all over County Down. We were on it this afternoon, overlooking Strangford Lock, the Drumlins, Sleeve Crude, the Mourns, my childhood home. Such a beautiful panorama, inspiring, but it will be even more inspirational when God fulfills his restoration plan. No, no, I shouldn't get carried away. I can't imagine the details. The future glory is beyond human imagination. And also our adoption to sonship, our adoption as children of God and the redemption of our bodies is beyond imagination. Our hope is not in what we imagine, hope that is seen. Our hope is in what we do not yet have. We wait for it patiently. Our present suffering doesn't compare to the glory that will be revealed. And as we read in Revelation chapter 21, there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more mourning. Death will be eliminated. And what more? I, I can't fantasize about. No artist can truly create an image of Jesus as we will be transformed to reflect. Our sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verses 32 to 39, which I have referred to as the Christian's glory. As we, we come to the conclusion of this illuminating chapter, Paul asked of his Roman Christians who are mulling over this epistle, he asks, what then? And what is your response your response to the assurance of these verses, your justification and your future glory. What response do you make to God who did not spare his own son, gave up his most precious possession, his son to die a lonely death for you? Will he not work out all things for your good? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? 
Are you reading verse 33? Look, God justifies. God declares us righteous and free. Why resist the forgiveness of God? Who is he who condemns? Jesus who died and rose again, is standing by God on our behalf. He is our advocate. He speaks for us. Trust him. He will set us free from guilt. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? There may, be, may seem to be much in this world, but, but, as it was for Paul's first readers, and for Paul at one time, and for us today, there are many things that has the potential to do so. There's trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. We can imagine these in today's context. We can imagine what they might be for us. But Paul emphatically says, no, Christ has won the victory on the cross. He attacked the worst that life brings. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul is convinced in his day. He tells the Romans, he tells us, there's nothing, there's nothing. God loves us. He loves us eternally. He loves us because he loves us. In response to his love through faith in Jesus, there can never be any separation. Are you trusting Christ? There's nothing that will separate you from your friend, Christ Jesus. It may be possible that you are here tonight and you are uncertain about the assurance of your destiny. You're not sure about a call, about your justification, about being a child of God. You're unsure about there being no condemnation or no separation. Be sure. God's love for you is determined in eternity. God has a purpose for you, a plan to welcome you into his family forever. Forever. There's no separation. And Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Let's pray.